You have more technical problems than any other nerd I know. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. This episode is sponsored by Component One, makers of Widgmo. If you need stunning UI elements or awesome graphs and charts, then go to widgmo.com and check them out. Hey everybody and welcome to episode 42 of the JavaScript Jabber Show. This week on our panel we have Joe Eames. Is out to a phone call. Terrible timing. <laughs> we also have Mara Christensen. And that's me. AJ O'Neill. Yo, yo, yo. Coming at you live from the snow sphere of Provo, Utah. And we have a guest as Brian Turley. That's right. I'm uh-huh. a designer friend of AJ's. All right. And we're talking about CSS today, so we brought in a designer to set us all straight. And I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And uh, like I said, we're talking about uh, CSS today. One of the things I think that's interesting about CSS is it converges with uh, JavaScript. Well, there are a couple of things, but one is uh, systems like Less that kind of compile. Uh, they give you some sane options for dealing with some of the dumb stuff that CSS doesn't include. And then the other one is is some. I've also wind up wound up fighting designers for selectors in the HTML, and so I thought we could talk through that a little bit as well. Hey I'm, Chuck, yes, uh, I think I think uh, those are two like really good points. But I think there's even more areas that we can discuss in terms of how JavaScript and CSS are coupled, right? Like, like computed styles from JavaScript, and also all the CSS methods from JavaScript, and the fact that yeah. your JavaScript sometimes doesn't work, your UI doesn't work unless the CSS is set up. I think the two tend to be a lot more coupled than people like to think. I agree. That That's fair. So which, which avenue or which aspect do you want to tackle first? Should we talk about just CSS and where it kind of doesn't give us what we want? <laughs> I'll love to complain about CSS. I'm... <laughs> I got some bitterness in that sphere. Yeah. I, I know some people consider it programming, but it it doesn't have any of the things that classical programming has, like variables and functions or methods or anything like that. And Math. and I think that's where a lot of us get frustrated, is that we're used to being able to reuse things. We're used to being able to set things up that will define the behavior that we want. And in CSS, you really don't have that. It's It's really just simple markup. So, but what, do you consider, do we consider the um, CSS uh, languages like SAS and LESS and all those to be part of CSS? Because then you're talking about you actually start having those things. Yes. I, 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 I don't know if you can call them CSS. I, I tend to think well, they, of them more as frameworks they and less compile to CSS. Yeah. And they're That's still true. not programming languages. If, well, if That's you still, not true. They, they become programming languages in some sense. SAS, for example, has. Uh, Functions, mix-ins, if-else logic, mathematics. It's very much, I would consider, a domain-specific language, sure, but it's definitely a programming language. I, mean, I guess it depends on your definition of language, because HTML is a hypertext markup language. If it's not a programming language, then it's certainly not a speaking language. Yeah. But before we move on to like actually like saner implementations of CSS, can we gripe about regular CSS yeah. for a second? Yeah, let's I think do we it. have to. Yeah. One of the things that I've struggled with with CSS versus JavaScript, and maybe you guys uh, haven't experienced this as much, uh, maybe I'm just a noob, 
but with CSS, I find that it is it is completely underfeatured for the things that we're trying to do with it these days. Like in terms of building really rich clients, uh, to the point where you have to you have to be incredibly disciplined with things like object oriented CSS um, and, and like uh, what else what else kinds of mantras are there? There's like smacks and and yeah, these things all help. But really, it, it, it all comes down to the fact that CSS is kind of an underfeatured language where discipline is your only defense in terms of maintainability. And that's true of JavaScript, except for JavaScript is at least flexible enough that we can band-aid it uh, to be something that is more scalable towards what we need to do with it these days. Whereas CSS is just rigid. You, you have to use a preprocessor. Yeah, it's harder right? to be disciplined in CSS than it is to be disciplined in PHP. That says a lot. <laughs> that's a good point. Yeah, that's, except for... I don't have the PHP rage that you guys do. <laughs> well, so CSS has absolutely no errors whatsoever. CSS is completely just a text format that may or may not turn into anything useful. It's even worse than PHP because PHP, when you put it through, when you well, because you run it because it's a template language and you get... Sometimes, very, very, very rarely, but in the worst of cases, you get an error. With CSS, you can just type garbage, and you never get an error. Well, you don't get an so error. The problem the syntax, is, right? yeah, if well, you, you if you mess up the syntax, for example, if you leave off a closing curly brace, you just lose everything else. Yeah, but without warning. Yeah, yeah, and with but with it, the compilers, it's pretty that. easy to find where you broke the CSS. Whereas with JavaScript, there's a lot of variables you can edit, you yeah. can uh, mess up, because it's more comp complex syntax. That's fair. Yeah. Uh, One well, other thing, easy is relative because if you're kind of new to CSS and you haven't learned the tricks about yeah. figuring things out, then the other thing I've seen a lot of people struggle with, like my uh, my career as a programmer, actually came more from like the design into the development and not the design the development forced to be a designer. So most of my experience with CSS has been building out sort of basic websites. And I found as I met more and more developers that came from more Java or uh, sort of back-end programming or programming backgrounds in general, they really struggle with some of the CSS that is less obvious, right? Like, like the fact that margins collapse or different, different things that are not so like... For example, when you float two elements, you, you need to clear your floats because you essentially lose your box model. <laughs> Things like that just tend to boggle developers' minds because it's a declarative language, but you're not necessarily declaring what the heck uh, clear both does or what uh, overflow hidden does to break break your clear your floats. Um, and I think that, that that's one of the more insane driving things for, for a lot of developers. Yeah, I mean, as you do it, you get used to doing those kinds of things if you learn those tricks. One other totally. thing that, that blows my mind sometimes is um, the way that the CSS will cascade. So you have a, a, an outer element, then you have a, a mid-level element, and then another mid-level element, and then another mid-level, and then you have the bottom element. And so if you've got selectors that that select the bottom element and you've got other selectors that select things in between. And, you know, sometimes, um, you'll select like an, uh, the, the completely outer element and then you'll say any, any of the inner type that do yeah. things. And so which ones win? And it's not always obvious. It's not always the last one. And, and so you're, you're always, you know, trying to figure that out. Thankfully you have tools like the, um, 
the Chrome web developer tools that will show you which ones are winning and help you figure out how to get it. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, that's speaking of the uh, cascading. Now, don't get me wrong, like, I'm, I'm really grateful for CSS and the fact that we're not using font tags and, and tables anymore. Oh, with thank you. Yeah. You remember, like, those spacer.gifs? <laughs> like, that was a. And at the time, it was so awesome. Like, doing table layouts was the shiz, you know? Yeah, now it's, now it's such a kludge, man. Mac? Oh, yeah, dude. I was, I was, I was hustling tables. Um, <laughs> but, but my point is, is the problem with a big team, and this is why I say CSS is completely underfeatured for, for where we are today as, as a development, is people are trying to build, like, desktop class applications in the browser. Um, and when you when you do that, you tend to require a bigger team to build these kinds of really rich components. And I'm super stoked for the web component API, by the way, because of this. But it's really hard in the browser, particularly, to encapsulate people. In, in JavaScript, we're given closures to do that, essentially. Like, we have functions or closures. But in CSS, you have a team, like, anyone making CSS selectors is essentially affecting everybody else in the global scope. And so they come up with these really awkward, unique class names, but then you don't have the shared code anymore because you can't import somebody else's styles or extend other styles. And and I love SAS, particularly because they offer an add extend, which is completely useful. But the problem is, is because it's not in the language, you tend to bloat your style sheets when you use extend. So I think the CSS working group needs to take a look at extend. And as you said, the only defense is discipline. Yeah. yeah. Nothing with CSS, CSS, and that's what kills me. One other thing that I want to bring up, and this is something that I've been fighting more recently, is that we're using XJS for my current client, and um, they they it generates its own styles. It uses its own styles, and it generates its own um, styles in line. It'll just you know add them to the tag in the style tag, and so in order to override those, a lot of times you wind up using Bang Important. Um, no. The, oh, no. The, the, the real problem is, is that they use Bing important. So if you want to override what <laughs> they did, you can't just add a style that, you know, overrides it. You actually have to tell it it's important. It's I want to take Bing important and I want to stab them in the eye with it. Yeah, just take the bang. Dude, that's, that's funny. You know, something that I've seen is, is I call them, I call it Z index warfare and it's developers. <laughs> making up a, a higher Z index than whatever else is on the page. And eventually you get up and you're like, 9 million one Z index. <laughs> and it's like, top of that suckers, you know? <laughs> but it's, yeah. it's just because it's really hard to know uh, the scope of, of your development environment when it's completely something you're going to have to research what classes you can reuse. So you end up needing to do a ton of work on a style guide or something, uh, which really we just need some sort of like better encapsulation uh, and better sharing with encapsulation, but whatever. Mm -hmm. So one other question so, I have about this before we move on to some of the solutions is CSS3, does it make it any better? No. Oh, do you, do you, well, it does. It does in some sense. Do you remember? Do you remember having to create fetching shadow corners and yeah. then repeating images on the sides of your internal div just to make a div with a box shadow grow to the content? Uh-huh. Because I remember that. And or those were tearful days, man. Yeah. Oh, rounded corners, like the amount of work that went to into some of the simplest UI components that for the most part you don't have to deal with. Thanks or the to gradients. Oh my gosh, the gradients. 
which which wasn't possible before, right? Before you had to hack it by making some hugely long gradient image. Yeah, and, um, and then you would make it stretch when you're when you're. Yeah, you make it stretch, sizes. or you'd pick a background color. Yeah, yeah, and so it would gradient to yeah to the height of the image, and then background color from there. So CSS uh, three, and also arguably, I don't think it's part of the specification, but I know there are variables in uh, WebKit. Uh, with WebKit prefixes, you can, it's some awful syntax and it's really upsetting that they didn't use any familiar syntax, but, but you can do like WebKit, uh, something variable and you can actually make variables, but I don't think that's part of the CSS spec. Maybe it is, uh, yeah. what that up. But one other thing with CSS three that is worse, that drives me crazy is some of them will honor like the actual CSS. So if you put border dash radius in, it'll give a border radius to it. But half of the browsers out there, you still have to put like dash WebKit dash uh, border dash radius dash laws. Yeah, and so it's like it's like okay, well I've only declared it like six times now. That's a good point. I think I've been using preprocessors for too long because I haven't experienced that. Yeah, the preprocessors are nice because they'll just insert that for you. They'll put all of them in. You don't have to think about it. Yeah. Well, it's really funny when the browser makers started supporting each other's prefix tags. Firefox is like, hey guys, what about us? <laughs> yeah. Want any of those Moz prefixes? <laughs> so the thing that, that just drives me nuts though is that with all of the web standards, like anybody that's under that umbrella, it's like they lock them in separate rooms and say, please don't ever work with someone who will ever develop with this technology and come up with the API based on looking at your foot, you know? <laughs> Yeah. Like if anyone who had ever used JavaScript in their life had been present in the room when they were going through the CSS3 stuff, they would have been like, oh, wait, don't you mean to make it so that that's actually usable? (laughs) I hate my life. Can you make me hate it less? (laughs) I I forgot one more thing that I have to throw in there. And and I don't know how common this is anymore because I usually just ignore Internet Explorer. But you remember adding those comments in there that are like, if IE less than seven, then use this style sheet. And it like you overrides mean, half of your styles. So it'll look right in the other browser. Yeah, you, you mean know. if IE include Chrome frame? <laughs> you see the, uh, you see the star hack a lot too, right? Like, this rule applies specifically to RE. Someone put an asterisk. IE. Someone put an asterisk before it. Oh, I haven't. I haven't seen that one. I've seen it, but I never understood it. Yeah. Or the, you know, like another thing I'm grateful is is going the way of the dinosaurs. I don't know if you guys ever had transparent pings back in the day because you couldn't get a gift to match just uh-huh. right. <laughs> so if you wanted to get the transparency to carry over an IE, you had to like include some corresponding. Uh, either HTC file to get the Microsoft browsers to respect the transparency <laughs> to like redraw the images. It was yeah, such I, a wonderful road, man. Like, <laughs> I remember there was a JavaScript library for it. It was like png.js or something. There you go. Yeah. That for you. It's like, are you kidding me? All right. So uh, are there any other gripes that we have about CSS that we want to air before we start talking about some of these solutions? Yeah, the inability to know if a class is used. Oh, yes. And so that's why I, my style sheets download 40K extra worth of styles that probably are never used, but I can't delete yeah. them because they might be used. 
And if you do delete them, they could potentially break behavior and not just look. Yeah. So it's yeah, so right. it's really risky to delete things. Yep. Oh, it's all discipline. Yep. And and another headache is the absolute positioning or relative positioning or whatever positioning and uh, No, no, no. You got to put a absolute inside, inside of a relative. relative. Yes. <laughs> I don't know that. That's less insane. Like fixed and fixed not working sanely across uh Older browsers, that's more disappointing. Yeah. Well, they fixed fixed in uh, iOS 6. Oh, that's nice, because there's plenty of libraries to, to dock navigation at that point. Yeah. All right. Well, let's let's talk about some of these, uh, what are they, preprocessors, compilers? Oh, man. I, I don't know what you'd call them. Preprocessor seems like a good one. Transpilers, I don't know. They're kind yeah. of compilers, I suppose. It's it's like a meat grinder, right? You put the uh, SAS or whatever in one end, and you get CSS out the other. It's yeah, it's the coffee script of CSS. It is, yeah. Except for yeah, it is. Yeah. Except so, for unfortunate limitations that coffee script doesn't as much because JavaScript is so flexible, you can do some pretty crazy things with it. Yep. So, which ones have you guys used? I've used uh, less stylus and compass slash SAS. Isn't that all of them? Less. There's there's more than that. There's one from some agency. Uh, can't even think of the name. But I, but I have used quite a few of them because CSS is such a tearful road. Stylus. So I just use less. I'm open to using something else. They all kind of seem the same to me. So I picked less because at the time um, it was... Like, you didn't have to do anything to your CSS to start using it. You just rename the file from .css to .less, and bam, now you've at least got linting. So um, I'd like to point out that that is also true of, of SCSS, which is compiled by the SAS compiler. Yeah. So so that's not exclusive to less. Yeah, I've used yeah. SAS, and I've I've used Compass, which is built on SAS. And which is so sexy. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm in love with Compass. When I when I consider my my sort of CSS heroes and people that I think are like changing the landscape for CSS, Chris Epstein is is up there. He's the guy that I think he's on the SAS core team, but I know he, he's the lead for Compass. And Compass is just amazing. Like, not only does it uh, abstract away a lot of these odd sort of browser things, like inline block not working in certain versions of IE. Uh, and giving you mix-ins to basically mitigate some of those. So it kind of has to liken it to the jQuery library, or I'm sorry, a JavaScript library. You have jQuery, right, who can sort of mitigate the differences across browsers. Mm -hmm. So Compass has sort of a jQuery aspect of it to that, where you have these shared mix-ins that, that mitigate differences across browsers. And as browsers evolve, so does your compiled CSS, which is really cool, right? So if a certain prefix get, gets uh, deprecated, then it'll get deprecated out of your CSS the next time you compile. But then it also has an JS component where you can compile production-level CSS versus uh, targeted CSS uh, for different types of browsers. Well, what do you mean by production-level versus targeted? What, what's the difference there? Uh, they, they have different styles that you can output. You can do, like, development output. And by the way, Chrome has source maps for SAS, which is really dope. Um, so, so where your actual CSS or SCSS is and knowing where that's reflected in your browser is actually in Chromium, they have source maps that you can go to the line number within where it is actually in your SAS or your that's SCSS. That's sick. 
it's it's super sick particularly because now I, I wrote this library one time to to load css onto a page with a component using amd so if you if you needed a lot of times your javascript needs this css right to function like mm -hmm. they're not as different as you think and so i wrote something to let you basically require and interact with your css on the page uh called style manager and the only problem with that was is i i made style tags rather than links because the browser actually stops you from creating link tags at a very short number of links. It's like 30-something, um, or maybe even less than that. So, But when you create style tags, then you no longer know where the heck your CSS is coming from. But source maps help rel uh, mitigate that issue. Right. So um, do we want to talk about some of the just the basic features of the less or SAS or whatever type of, let's call them uh, preprocessors, your CSS preprocessors. Just some of the features that make your life simpler. Um, it seems like the, the, the kind of the biggest one that's the most useful, at least for me initially, is variables. Yeah, for sure. And I, I think mix ins are probably my, where my heart is the most. And that's why I like Compass to a, yeah. append to SAS because, or uh, for Stylus, it's called Nib. I don't know if Less has something. I'm sure it does because it's crazy if they don't. Well, Nib is for stylus, what Compass is, in a sense, to SAS, and they give you, like, uh, known mix-ins, right? Like, I want to make this a uh, horizontal list, or I want to make this uh, inline block. Yeah, it looks like it does have mix-ins. Um, and they do the vendor prefixing as well, which is just... Those are, those are pre-built mix-ins, but for those of you that don't know what mix-ins are in this context... They're almost like includes, I would suppose. They're like they're sort of like little functions that evaluate to because they can usually take arguments and they can evaluate to like a output of CSS. Syntax checking, that's a huge one. Yeah, well that's because all of these uh, preprocessors are syntax reliant or uh, they rely on the syntax. And so if if the syntax doesn't line up, it'll barf. And so Thank goodness. And yeah. so the the whole point is is yeah you get the syntax checking for free with all of them because they have to have the correct syntax or they'll they won't work so it's kind of a bonus there yeah, so, yeah for sure yeah and the mix-ins for me you can kind of think of them as really dumb templates and that's actually a fair point yeah they're almost like partials <laughs> yeah it's they like are a macro. yeah it's a macro that that's that's a good a good way of thinking about them. So effectively, you just say, okay, here, here's what you need to know to put it together, and then it just compiles a, a, a set of CSS for you. And, and they're extremely powerful. And you can, you can mix them together, so if you want rounded corners and you want a certain gradient on the background and you want these other things, you just mix in a couple of these, and uh, it does all the work for you. Yeah. Uh, I'm kind of curious, uh, Brian, from a designer point of, designer's point of view, do you find the same usefulness out of these, or, or are there other things that really kind of pay off for you? Um, so I've only used less up to this point, and then uh, standard CSS. And um, it's been nice to be able to do, you know, queries and um, kind of the mix-ins. But other than that, I haven't gone really deeply into the, like, programmatic features of these uh, preprocessors. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know what else is cool, Chuck? Is, uh, Brian, maybe you know this. 
Do you know if Les has color manipulation stuff? Because that's something that I've, I really, as a guy who's uh, not necessarily a designer, uh, actually I'm just straight up not a designer, I really like the ability to use like, uh, you know, lighten this gray by 30%. Uh, so that way when I have a variable that represents, or, or let's do blue, because that, that makes a little bit more sense, but I want to lighten the blue by 30% to create this variable, and I want to darken the blue by 20%, and I want to do some desaturation on, on the blue for this variable. And so you can create like themes from a single hex value, because you're able to, to essentially do color manipulation or mathematics on the hex to generate different color schemes, uh, or different colors. And that's one of the things that I really think is cool about these particular things, too. Uh, can you do that in less? Do you know? Um, I'm not sure. I haven't tried to do that. I think uh, you can. Lo looking I think on I've the seen page, it on their documentation. Yeah, less lesscss.org. I'm I'm browsing all of these. Um, it does have that. It has some function stuff cool. that you can do, and it it specifically in the footer it says color, base color, blah blah, and it adds um, some uh, green to it. And then the next one is border color, and it desaturates the red by ten percent. Awesome. So you know what? that's great. That's awesome. I think. One of the things I really like about about less is is I you know this is a JavaScript podcast and so I'm trying to avoid the hipstery thing of being like well it's written in JavaScript so therefore um, but the fact that it is written in JavaScript is really nice because now you don't have to run a build step during development still you can just do it on the fly and that's why I think uh, designers are drawn to less right is it's like add this to your page and then you're done it's not like go and install Ruby. Go and get gems updated. Now install Compass or now install Saslang. It's like no, you just grab this JavaScript file, which they're probably used to doing from jQuery and things like that, and then suddenly you can support these new features in your browser. So yeah. I think Less has had a great level of adoption because the fact that it was built in a way that it could be run in the browser. Uh, so you also, you instead of compiling it to CSS as a preprocessor step, you actually load just it. attach it as a file. Yeah, all you do is you install or you use a script tag to get less.js, and then from there all of your CSS link tags can be rel uh, stylesheet slash less, and then you just pull in your .less files, and it will on the fly um, set up your CSS for you. And, and I would be shocked to, to tell you to do that in production, right? Yeah, I was going to say, I wouldn't do this in production, but... Yeah, yeah. well, because I've always precompiled it. I just like, I mean, the first reason I started using it, like I said, is because it provided a linter. So if there was a semicolon missing, it would catch it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And speaking of linters, since this is a CSS podcast, there is CSS lint uh, in terms of just the syntax piece. And CSS lint is kind of like the JS lint of the CSS world. And it's it also happens to be incredibly harsh. And I'm kind of waiting for CSS hint to come out. <laughs> Why don't Something you go write it? Gentle. It's from, uh, I think it's from Stubbornella, who, who kind of came up with the object-oriented CSS uh, mentality and evangelized it so much, which is awesome, by the way. It goes miles and miles in terms of maintaining CSS across a big team. Yeah. So we've, we've talked about mix-ins. One of the things that I want to talk about with the variables, besides just the fact that you have them, is that in a lot of cases you can do um, mathematics with them, so you can... You can say, for example, if you have a, a color, and it's it's really a hex number, and most of these preprocessors know that. So, so if you want it to darken, you just multiply by two, 
Um, you can also, you know, use some of the other saturation, light and dark and whatever functions that are built into these. But, you know, uh, the other thing is, is if you want one thing that's twice as wide as the other, you just, you know, you have a width variable for the one, you just times two for the other one. And so a lot of that is really, really handy. Yeah, like, it's amazing. Some of the grid frameworks, like Suzy, I don't know, have you seen Suzy? It's amazing. But some of these frameworks for grids written in these languages are so remarkably flexible and robust because they just use math to generate the grids. Rather than like the old day when you like downloaded, I shouldn't call it the old days because p people probably still use them quite frequently, but like the 960 grid system, you downloaded it and then you have like a, a, a shiz ton of classes that you just use, you know, whereas mm -hmm. with this, you, you essentially get this awesome level of grids that you can compile and customize and so, and they're responsive too like suzy is awesome because their grids are done with m's and they're they include breakpoints which is another area that sass is awesome they're already helping you with responsive stuff that is cool i'm, I'm looking at it right now it's really and cool. it's isn't it's, it sweet yeah it's all managed through um through mixins yep it's all managed through mixins and uh that guy i think the guy that does that also did uh and hopefully i'm not miscrediting people but uh he also did this animation plugin for CSS3 animations, which is eventually going to be bubbled up into Compass. But it abstracts away a lot of the CSS syntax for doing, uh, you know, the hardware accelerated or hopefully hardware accelerated CSS3 animations and transforms. So, jumping off of the animation thing real quick. So, um, I I just briefly looked at the there's there's like a document dot add event listener animation done or like webkit animation done or something like that to so you know that when you're doing a CSS3 transition that some transition somewhere on the page is finished is that right you know I wish I knew that's actually been something I've always struggled with is not knowing when those things are going to be <laughs> completed yeah, because you almost have to set it off and then set a javascript timer so that you can react when it's done well, you can you you can add an event listener for it, okay. but I think the event listener is really stupid. If I understood the example I was looking at correctly, in that it's an event listener that fires any time any animation is complete. So if you add two classes with animations, then you are going to get two animation events or something. I, I, some polling on the DOM. See, I got to give those guys more credit. Like I. I would be shocked if that were the if there were really only one event listener and and I've been shocked before in this kind of stuff. But like if you think about images, like you can you can listen to load on a document, but you can also listen to load on other elements as well. So so I I would just be amazed if if that was the way you had to do it. I'm gonna Google it real quick. Yeah. You know most of the CSS animation and and transition stuff that I've done because it's not very well supported yet has been just in like little pet projects and little experiments. Uh, what you do with like 3D transforms and stuff because it's kind of hard to use in production today because most people can't support it anyhow. Yeah. So I haven't really experienced much what the interaction with JavaScript would be like yet, except for adding the classes. So one other thing I want to talk about with some of these, um, in fact, all of the ones that I've looked at, SAS, LESS, whatever, is nesting. It's simple, but it's really nice. It is. Yeah. So, so if you have a... It, f if you have a div and you know you're going to have another div of another class inside of that, you can just define it inside of the CSS definition for the out outer div, and then it will properly 
compile it down so that you have outer div, inner div, and then the style in the CSS. Yeah, which, which is wonderful because you're, you're not retyping that earlier selector like over and over, but mm-hmm. it's also a vice. And I'll give you a word of warning because when I, when I first started using SCSS, uh, I, I, I basically mashed my HTML structure because that's what made sense to me at the time for whatever reason. And I basically was like, oh, yeah, screw CSS and all of those things that I learned about maintaining CSS. I didn't just basically mash this up. But So so you, you basically throw away all the reusability of your CSS when you create over-specified selectors, right? And it's really tempting to do that when you get the nesting because it feels like you're just replicating almost your markup. Well, the thing that I really like about it is that it's like, um, so let's say I have in general a widget that's going to be on my thing on my page. And so I can do widget and then I can do all the special styling for a widget. So all the buttons that are going to be in a widget, all of the oh, yeah. links that are going to be in the widget, all, you know, all of that stuff. And then I can declare another one that's, you know, specialized widget. And then I can just tweak what I want in that and have that a, a separate selector that's got all the nested stuff in it. And totally. so, so it keeps, it keeps all of the stuff that belongs together together because it's nested and, and it's convenient to put it there. Oh, that's the brilliant way to use it. See, like, I just, it took me a little bit of uh, pain to realize that you shouldn't over specify just because you can, right? Just because it feels so natural to. Uh, but that's, that's an awesome way to do it. And if, you're, if you've used SAS, they offer an ad extend. So you could be like, my specialized widget actually extends this other widget. So they give mm-hmm. you like a way to, pull in those attributes, but it, it tends to bloat your style sheets. Uh, so yeah. again, I want to call on the CSS working group to review extend. Yeah, I generally don't use the extend because because of exactly what you said. Because then it, it, it yeah, it pulls all of the styles from the original into the compiled version of the of the copy. Well, what it does is it is it is it uh, takes your selectors and then it adds them to whatever you're extending as well. Oh, with the there you go. So your selectors tend to be ex- exceptionally bloated uh, when they don't when they don't need to be. Mm-hmm. But extend in theory would go a really long way towards uh, making CSS more maintainable, and so that's why I really hope they review that. Yeah, I, I really I really like the you know I, I usually don't use extend. I just I just set it up so that the one is is up above the other, and so then my specializations get loaded last and they win. And then they, you know, they kind of take control that way. One of the other things, I don't know if uh, Stylus or Less has this, but it's another thing that I really love about Compass is they actually compile sprites into CSS. So you can give it a folder of images and you can import it into your style sheets and it'll outport, it'll export a com- like a compressed image of all those images as well as CSS to basically reference those images. Wow. So like I, I look at, uh, Compass and SAS, and I honestly just feel like they're way advanced, but that's honestly because I haven't ever felt the need to look at the other ones as much. Like, I've, I've looked at Less and Stylus, and I've used them both, but I've never been quite as impressed as I am with Compass and SAS. To jump back for a second, I did just find a better tutorial one on the MDN, the Mozilla Developer Network, and it does show that you can listen to the animation start, animation end, and animation interval frame or something like that on individual elements. The previous tutorial I looked at was doing it the dumb way where it made it seem like you had to listen on the window. You don't care about event delegation? (laughs) What? 
So I'm just trolling, dude. Yeah. So so let's talk about the build processes a little bit. I mean, with, with SAS, it's Ruby. With Less, it's JavaScript. So it's JavaScript. Stylus is JavaScript? Yeah. Uh, do, the, do they depend on Node, or can you use some of the other JavaScript engines? Like Firefox, for example? <laughs> <laughs> no, Rhino? Come on. Yeah, Rhino, or yeah, whatever. For us kids in the Java world, I don't know. I, I, anytime I've ever used the instance I'm thinking of right now is JS Doc. When I, when I switched from the Rhino engine to Node for for running our JS documentation, we cut the time by almost like, uh, like two thousand percent. It was insane the speed improvement. So I haven't even tried to run things through Rhino anymore, even though we have a very heavy Java backend here. Mm. Yeah, the, the, the reason that I ask is because a lot of times what you wind up doing is you set up a CI machine or some other build machine. And so when you check in and you're ready to deploy, or even before you're ready to deploy, if you have some staging environment or something, um, when it's getting ready to push that out, you have to have, in, in SAS's case, you have to have Ruby installed and you have to have the, the SAS gem and probably the Compass gem if you're using any of their mixins yep. um, on the machine in order to do the build. And the same with um, less or whatever. If you're if you're going to use it, you know you typically are using Node or some other you know execution environment to to build that out. And so um, yeah. a lot of times it it basically comes down to well, what do I already have there? What am I going to need in place anyway? You know what what are the trade offs between the features I'm getting versus the technology I have to install? And uh, how long is it going to take my build cycle to to run? If I'm using these different tools, dude, that's what DevOps engineers are for. <laughs> well, that's actually a, a beautiful point, particularly when when you complicate your build that you need to build it to develop, when you need to run your build to develop, because then suddenly your development time starts to dwindle as your builds start to take two to three seconds. You know, and that's a that's an optimistic case for a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, as far as build steps go, yeah, it it is something to consider. And there are trade-offs. I, I think for the most part, though, it doesn't really matter if it takes you three seconds or four seconds to deploy, as long as you're, you know, you're, you're not creating downtime on the other end. So if you're talking about build steps from a designer's point of view, um, since we're usually less familiar with uh, programming languages, it's best if you set up your styles so that they can compile in a really quick set of steps or, you know, very simply, maybe one step. You know, uh, as easy as you can make it for the designer, the better. Oh, that's better for developers too, man. I'm with you. Yeah, always, almost always. Yeah, it, it it's definitely there's definitely something to that. Uh, one other thing. Well, I, I think grunt grunt kind of gets in a space where it can solve that problem too with doing the watches and. And like I, the build system that I currently have that I use, I reuse a lot. I kind of would like to convert to using Grunt after seeing Merrick's excitement about it. Yes. So that's another thing that I was gonna talk about a little bit is that uh, some of these frameworks. I know that uh, SAS has one. Um, it looks like Less has one as well. Um, they basically have. Uh, uh, something that you can start up. It's it's a daemon or something. It's basically a watcher. And so it watches that, that section of the file system and then basically says, oh, something changed here, and then it'll compile it on its uh, own. Have have you had any problems with that? Do you generally like that kind of thing? 
I found I found in my case you run into browser limitations before you run into your operating systems limitations, uh, depending on what you're building. Like I I've seen like for example the link task you get a big enough uh, task that you need to watch, and your file system suddenly can't open and watch that many files. Right, your operating system can't. Uh, because of file access limitations, and you can adjust those. But because the browser only allows like a certain amount of CSS selectors uh, or a certain amount of link tags as it is, uh, you typically don't run into those as much with the CSS problem because you have less files in general. Fewer However, files. Yeah, fewer files, I should say. Uh, and and also, the one area that I have had a problem is, and I'm not uh, aiming to bash Ruby at all because I love Compass, but because of the the sprite compilation that we're doing, it, that can be the slowest part of our build, right? Because they're doing this awesome, basically image compression and and uh, com compiling really sophisticated style sheets from it. So that can take longer than you'd hope when you start to use some of those uh, more expensive features. And it kind of makes you wonder, like, how did we go backwards from the 1970s when? You know, make files made sure that your sprites didn't get recompiled when they didn't need to. You know, I actually wonder that. Like, like particularly with Node.js, like I, I keep waiting for for when we're not going to have to close Node and reopen it every time we make a change. Uh huh. Yeah. One other thing that uh, is is interesting that I've run into with some of these is um, I'll set it up so that it'll compile whenever I change something on my development machine. And then when I try and merge with something that some somebody else was working on who was doing the same thing, I run into merge conflicts. Um, yeah, they're, they're, not check in those compile files. Yeah, the the I mean it's easy to solve, right? You just run the build again after you've merged all of the source files, and and then it just you know you don't have a merge conflict on the compiled file anymore because it doesn't matter. Yeah, it's uh, easier just to not version control them, I think. Yeah, I agree. Just build, just put it into your your build and deploy Ignore. steps. Yeah, and that way you get them out where you want them. Exactly. Yeah, and and Rails, I, I use Ruby on Rails for a lot of the development I do, and it has its own asset pipeline, and you run into that with some of the others as well, the JavaScript files and stuff. Oh, interesting. So, and anyway, yeah, you, I, I agree. You generally would want to keep them out of your build or out of your uh, development process. Don't check them in. Yeah. So there's a couple issues that we mentioned in the beginning but didn't actually get into. Well, one in particular, and then something else that I was going to bring up. So when it comes to CSS, it, it's got the JavaScript part, the DOM part, and the style part, which are separate, you know, because JavaScript is one thing, HTML DOM is another thing, yeah, style and pretty fine things. And so with I think I've actually said this before on a different podcast we had, but the way I handle that um, distinction between what means what is if it's something the designer is going to use, then it's prefixed with CSS. If it's something that the JavaScript needs, it's prefixed with JS. And I think if you're looking at like uh, maybe that animation type stuff where it's got a more hooks into the DOM or something, you could prefix that maybe with like A and I or whatever. But at least, because I've heard people complain about, well, having CSS in front of every single class name is is kind of dumb because you just have to type more and blah, blah, wine, wine. 
but I've noticed that at least I think it was GitHub or some super, super, super popular sites have, if you look at their styles, they have JS in front of every single thing that they use to select on or attach an event on, which I think is a really good way to do it. I think that's more sensible, though, than, than prefixing everything, because if you're prefixing the exceptional stuff, uh, then your default can be to not prefix and assume that that's style. Right. I well, agree. the, the, the yeah. problem you run into is that people forget or they get lazy, so, like, if you see it where it doesn't have a prefix, then you know that someone forgot to decide what they meant they meant to do with it. Dude, developers are perfectly disciplined. They'll never do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I do also want to point out that in, in a lot of cases, the development, like the development teams that I've been working with recently, we, we don't do any of that, and it really hasn't been a problem for us. Um, since we're usually, you know, building both the CSS, uh, you know, the, we're doing the layout and we're doing the development. And so um, we, we have some regression tests to, that make sure that the, the site works. Um, you know, so it's like click here, do this, do this other thing. And so it'll fall apart if it doesn't work. And it, it kind of feels like a little bit extra overhead just in the process of building stuff to remember to do that. And so, well, I, if you have, I, if you, if it pays off for you, then go for it. And if it doesn't, then at what cost, Chuck? At what cost? Your users got to download all those C CSS prefixes. No, it's it's more just mental context that I have to keep in mind. Oh, that that's so that's I, that's the cost to me. It depends on your team. Since uh, I yeah. work often with people who don't do programming, I have found. That, that has taken my merge conflicts and my why doesn't my event attach on the DOM element that I think it should be attaching to from every single time someone commits to almost never. Yeah, and, and if, that's, if that's the price you're paying for not doing that kind of thing, then by all means, go for it. And then I, if there's ever a conflict between like an ID needing to be used by both, I'd say just hand it off to JavaScript unless you find out that the the building the widgets over and over again well that doesn't no that doesn't apply to a style. Yeah, so like just let the the ID go to the JavaScript and not to the CSS. That is a generally good rule that I found anyway, is that you just assume that the JavaScript is probably going to need the IDs. The it's it's really easy. I, I guess it goes both ways, but it's really easy to create just another class, and you can have as many classes as you want on an on an element. So, you know, the IDs can really be your unique selectors when you need them. And typically, you don't need them as as much in the CSS because you can just add a class to it, as opposed to the JavaScript where you may just want the one element. Yeah, the the IDs are they have a higher level of specificity too. So. They're, they're sometimes less useful in CSS than one might think. Yeah. So and I... Oh, go ahead. I was going to say one more thing is um, I've seen a lot of people when they're starting out, they do IDs and then they, they do this dumb thing where they do like table row zero, table row one, because they're dynamically generating IDs. And if you ever scrape sites, I scrape sites all the time, like when I get on something and they've got a bunch of songs on a demo album, I'll just put jQuery in there and select them and build the wget script, you know, kind of thing. Just steal the music. Yeah, for sure. Well, you know, if it's free. I'm anyway. kidding, dude. I'm just kidding. 
Yeah. So, Merrick, you were talking about how tightly coupled sometimes your CSS and your JavaScript can be, and we've kind of talked around some of the issues, but I, I'm still not completely catching the vision of where where they're tightly coupled. Are you just talking about like the page layout and what you can see and what you can't, or no, is there so, more to so, it than that? So, in a lot of ways, if your component doesn't look right, it simply doesn't work right, right? So. So say you have a popover component that is directly related to a link. Mm -hmm. um, if you don't have the CSS necessary to say, hey, this is going to be position absolute, so when the JavaScript figures out where to place it and it goes over the, over the link, then suddenly it shows up in the up left top of the corner, right? Or it's, it's positioned pertaining to the window. And then suddenly that popover component doesn't work anymore because it's not relative to the ancillary content that it's trying to represent. So, so that's one case. The other case is when you actually use classes in your JavaScript, for example, to hide elements, uh, to show elements, to, right. to, to things like that, that, that if you don't have those in your page simply doesn't work, right? Like there, there are certainly behavioral styles that when you're interacting with your element with JavaScript, that the behavior isn't, without that behavior, your component is no longer uh, functioning. So there's some coupling there that people tend to discredit, I think. Uh, there's a reason that when you download jQuery UI, for example, you have to download a corresponding CSS style sheet, even if you don't specify a theme. And that's because there are these behavioral or coupled styles that I'm talking about. That makes sense. That that makes a lot more sense than okay. what I was the trying to figure out. Because, <laughs> because they're styles that actually affect the behavior. They're not just Exactly. It's yeah. not just layout. It's it's actually how it how it interacts with the rest of the page. Exactly, and how it interacts with the user too, right? Yeah. So I like it. Are there any other aspects of CSS or these preprocessors or precompilers we want to talk about before we get to the picks? As much as I complain, I'm really grateful for the work done on it because it's a lot better than it used to be. Yeah, I, I think that's really the case. We just wish that it had some of these other features that make it much more pleasant to deal with. Exactly. And it's it's funny that we've actually built these shims on top of it that, you know... Transpile to it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That do all the stuff that we wish it had, so... Yep. All right, well, let's get into the picks. Really quick, I remember what my thought was. Instead of doing that, like, table row zero, one, two, three, whatever, use a class, and then use the data attribute to put, like, the ID number or whatever. But, um... One thing about CSS is there's little weird things where you can have, say, one style inside of another style, and it makes like your rendering or your DOM events like extremely slow versus if you put it on like a parent element or versus like if it's absolute. Have any of you guys ever encountered stuff like that? Nothing comes to mind. Mm -mm. I, I mean, I like I like that uh, elements on the page inherit from each other, but. Well, there was just one case where when I was building DropShare and I wanted to have the an element move with the mouse, I switched the class, I think, from being, uh, even though the element could move outside of its parent, I switched the class to being inside instead of outside, and it, like, made it be able to re-render, like, 100 times faster. Eh, never mind. Yeah, I don't know. I, I'd be interested if you want, if you could put, like, the code in a gist on GitHub or something, and then we could look at it, and you could say this one's faster and this was slower, and then we can kind of figure out 
what the difference was. Anyway, um, let's get into the picks. Joe, what are your picks? All right, uh, I've only got. I'm gonna have two picks today. The first one is the book Old Man's War. Uh, about halfway through that book, freaking awesome, excellent book. My other pick is the. Uh, I've, I've actually picked this uh, before when it first came out, but I got a copy of it for Christmas, and it's the X-wing miniatures game. Uh, I got the basic starter set for Christmas, and that is a really cool, really fun game. So I'm gonna pick that one as well. Awesome. Merrick, what are your picks? Dave Crow, he's a beatboxer. He's absolutely amazing. And uh, it was it was pretty dang cool. Uh, the other thing is, as per the new year, encourage people to live in the present, not in the past, and not in the future. It's good time to just try and recollect. Be happy. Yeah, the world could end a couple weeks ago. You never know. Yeah. All right, AJ, what are your picks? Okay, so I went to Utah Software Craftsmanship Group last night, and it was a different format than most of the groups I go to. It was more discussion-based. Joe, is that generally how it goes? Yeah, that's pretty much it. One hour of discussion on the book reading and then an hour of some kind of a coding exercise. Yeah, so I really liked that the way that that was done. It was very interesting. Um, so... If you're around Salt Lake and uh, you want to come to it, there'll be a link in the show notes to that group. Um, it, was, if, uh, it was a really cool experience. If you're interested in starting up your own local software craftsmanship user group and want some ideas on how to format it, then contact us. Yeah, it sounds like a really cool group. Unfortunately, I was fixing a toilet last night and I couldn't go. It is, it's really good to have a group that's all about just writing software well and not about the tech. Yeah, that, yeah. there's definitely that component to things. Because I think a lot of times we do get caught up in like what JavaScript can do rather than you know how the programming could really make our lives better. Yeah, like how to code well even though it's JavaScript. Yeah. Um, the other thing I'd like to pick is the Effective JS book. And I guess we're going to talk about that next week, so I'll save my comments. Two weeks. Uh, We're talking about it in two weeks. Oh, in two weeks? That's okay, a good because well, then. then people have a chance to read it before we uh, talk about it. Yeah. So the, the one, two things I want to say about it is it's, I don't necessarily think it's a book for absolute beginners. Um, and it does not dive into the specifics of the browser or of Node.js. It is about JavaScript, the language. It's not about the environments that you use JavaScript in. But it's very well written. Yep. Well, we'll we'll have read it, and we will be talking about it in two weeks with the author, David Herman. I guess I'm going to go next. So one thing that uh, I realized, these used to be a lot more expensive, but it's something that I, I've recently purchased. It's just a 32-gig SD card. Um, I usually try and pick things that are much more like, here's the general ap ap applicability of whatever it is. But uh, this cost me like 15 bucks. I was actually pretty happy about it. Um, and it it goes into my uh, Canon ZI-8 camera. Um, it also will fit into my uh, Ederall or um, Roland digital audio recorders. And so uh, I'm going to put a link to the one I got on Amazon. But uh, just, just super happy with that. And it, it's nice because then I can record a whole bunch of stuff before I have to sync it up to my computer and pull it off. 
The other thing that I want to pick, and this is just what I'm going to be doing um, next week, is I'm heading out to New Media Expo. Um, I'm actually speaking on podcasting, specifically on syndication. Anyway, so I'm really excited about that. It's going to be, um, well, when you listen to this, it's going to be over. But uh, I'm I'm really excited about that. And uh, the sister show the to this Alt show. Is that Expo? What? Is that Alt Summit or something else? New Media Expo. New Media Expo. Yep. And uh, it's in Vegas, It's which is like a, a five or six hour drive from here. Um, a little less when I drive it. A um, little, uh, little more than less if I uh, see police cars. Anyway, um, but yeah, I'm, I'm super excited. And then I'm also going to the Consumer Electronics Show. And I'm hoping that uh, while I'm down there at the Consumer Electronics Show that I'll see some devices that we can... Um, you know, that open up APIs. A lot of times they open up APIs to some of the more ubiquitous languages like uh, C++ or Java or in some cases even JavaScript. And so um, I'm, I'm kind of curious to see if we might run into some uh, some devices somewhere that allow us JavaScript developers to really get in and, and do cool things with them. So, um, And my last pick, and this is again something else that I'm working on, is I am on the verge of starting an iOS development show that's formatted like this and the other shows that I do. If you know somebody who is an iOS uh, developer that is kind of one of those genius people that you would like to hear talk about it every week, then uh, shoot me an email, chuck at devchat.tv, or you can tweet me, uh, cmaxw, and just let me know who they are. Um, I'm going to start inviting people to join the panel. And we'll probably kick things off here in about a month. So anyway, I'm also working on a show name. I bought a domain, but I'm not sold on the name. So um, anyway, those are my picks. And we'll throw it over to Brian. Brian, what are your picks? Yeah, thanks. Uh, so my my uh, my picks are you know more design picks, obviously. But um, one of them is a book called Grid Systems by Joseph Mueller Brockman. And um, it's it's not really specific to HTML or CSS, any web platform. It's really just grid systems in general. And um, I think it was written in the like the the sixties. Anyway, it's been a really helpful book for me and learning grid systems and just how they're applied. And uh, it's definitely been helpful as I've done web design as well. Uh, and then the other thing that's been interesting to me lately. Uh, it's this website called um, ifttt.com. You guys might have already seen it, but it's basically just a way to hook up different uh, platforms online and make them connect and, and talk with each other and be able to do some programmatic-like features. So it's pretty cool. So those are my two picks for this week. Awesome. One other thing that I want to mention real quickly is that I'm doing Rails Ramp Up. So if you want to learn Ruby on Rails, go to railsrampup.com and check that out. Well, thanks for coming to the show. I uh, really appreciate all of your input. And uh, we'll catch you all in a week or two.